All right. Who wants to start up the conversation? Who's hyped? Uh, I can take it. All right. We I'm always hyped about the Gap Band, guys. Don't play with me. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, CEO of the world's first humane pest removal slash DJ service, Bomb Droppers LLC. <laughs> Where, of course, we say the only good bug is a dead bug, but that doesn't mean they can't have one last party. Wow. It's quite a service you provide there. Yeah. You know, first we drop the bass, then we drop the bomb. I'm co-host Jeremy, and this being our 208th non-Patreon episode, I thought we might title this episode, Episode 206, The Gap Band. <laughs> that's, wow. That's a very complicated joke. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My brain just broke. Yeah. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, author of the new book, You Dropped the Mbop on Me, A History of Tulsa Music from the Gap Band to Hanson. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they're, well, I should, well, I can say it. They're brothers. They're all brothers. Yeah, that's true. Brother bands. True. All in the family. Alphabetically, we cover from G to H. <laughs> I'm Jesse Thorne. All I have is Funk Bombardier. You're the Funk Bombardier. Yes, our, our very special guest today is the founder and owner of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. You may know him from podcasts such as Jordan Jesse Go and Judge John Hodgman, as well as the NPR program Bullseye. Welcome, Jesse Thorne. What a joy to be here. What a joy and honor. I'm always thrilled to talk about the Gap Band 4 with anyone I can bother. Ooh, nice rhyme, too. Yeah, we're finally doing an episode on the Gap Band, Gap Band 4. Sean has been talking about this being one that he thinks we would, we would quite literally drop the bomb on our audiences, and this would be a huge episode. And here's Jesse Thorne, Max Fun, NPR, Jesse Thorne who is the one that selected tonight's record. We've been saving this one. It's been on our list of potential albums since day one of the podcast. And here it is. We're all going to talk about one of the greatest R&B records of all time. Basically a flawless dance masterpiece, Gap Band 4. Which is their sixth album, but we'll get into that. It was number one on the R&B album chart and number 14 on the pop album chart. Huge release from 1982. And we were going to start by playing the opening cut early in the morning. Are you guys ready for that? Let's do it. Heck yeah. Side A, track one. Okay. 
This is what I thought thinking about that song, which also opens the record, right? Is one of the main characteristics of funk in the 80s, but especially this kind of crossover R&B funk, is that it is like as carefully buffed and polished as any music could ever be in the history of the world, right? Like it is, you know, this is true of a lot of, records that were on the radio in 1982 or 1985, but it is this shiny, careful sheen record. But it starts with a voice from the recording booth, a rooster sound, and a super heavy keyboard bass intro that is much heavier than the rest of the song. Although the rest of the song is still very funky, but like it is like full of these little opening playful grace notes. And I think that is what makes the record feel human, even though it is such an eighties, you know, perfect sound forever recording. Yeah. The human element is still very much intact. The humor is there, but it doesn't sound corny. It's just, it's the, it's the perfect line somehow. Yeah. And it was a big hit. It was the Gap Band's biggest hit on the Billboard Hot 100. It reached number 24. It also topped the R&B chart and reached number 13 on the Dance Club Songs chart. So people were feeling it. I mean, it's one of these things where in the 80s, there was so much money in the record industry that your recording career could peak on record six. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the Gap Band put out two albums before Gap Band, this first of the of the series of which this is four, right? So this is album number six. And they they really were truly basically nothing more than fake parliament slash Ohio players for several records, including some good ones. But like they found this magic like a decade into their career. Yeah. And it used to be more common for bands to have that much breathing room to give them multiple albums to find their sound and find an audience. And that is something that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's true of cameo. It's true of earth, wind and fire. It's true of mm -hmm. cool in the gang. Like all of those are bands, obviously earth, wind and fire peaked earlier, but like, all of those are bands that started 
very differently from where they ended up with huge radio hits. And frankly, all of them are bands where both the original thing and the thing that hit on the radio are great. You know what I mean? You won't find me say anything bad about Celebration, even though, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I'm listening to cool jazz, right? And right. like the Gap Band, like every single song on this record was on the radio. And there were several monster hits on this record. And this is after, if they had started recording, even in the late 80s, their careers would have been over. Yeah, 82 is a really special year for funk music because it's this major transition point. It's disco is basically over with, but you still have strong rhythmic influences and like tonal sonic influences from that. But we're not fully into the completely synthesized 80s sound. And it, it's like 82 is my favorite year for funk. The bands that nailed that crossover sound are so interesting to me. And Gap Band 4 is like on top of the whole pile. That is an absolutely wild assertion that 1982 is your favorite year for funk. That it's one where people's minds are just completely exploding right now. And I'm not against it. I appreciate and support it. It's definitely not my favorite year for funk, but uh, I like the idea that sorry years when perfect parliament albums came out. (laughs) Sorry, the JBs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I guess a certain kind of funk, we'll say well, that. Well, <laughs> I mean, like, I think for people, like, I'm 42 years old. And for people my age, because when I started listening to the radio for hit records, it was like, you know, 1990-ish or something. And I listened to KMEL in San Francisco, the People Station. And KMEL was one of the first urban radio stations, in fact, the first urban radio station to play hip hop as their primary format and put hip hop against R&B hits and to some extent pop hits, right? So like Ace of Bass would be on there alongside TLC and Tony, Tony, Tony and actual rap hits, right? But that was, that only occurred after 10 years, 12 years of segregation between hip hop and R&B. And so when basically when when disco explodes, which it did pretty quickly, it took down much of the like <laughs> much of the dance music infrastructure of the United States. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. only a few bands managed to make it through that passage where they were hard enough, heavy enough to appeal to young people who were listening to hip hop, you know what I mean? While also managing to maintain a place on R&B radio where hip hop was really frowned upon. You know, like there's a, a very reasonably, you know, there's a lot of talk about the segregation and, and exclusion of hip hop on rock radio and on MTV and stuff. But like urban radio was not a different situation until like 1990, right? Like urban radio was completely opposed to hip hop or in, in rare cases, it was, you know, a two hour show on Friday and Saturday nights or whatever. And so Cameo, The Gap Band, there's a very short list of bands that made it through that period of disco, then ended up on the radio with heavy records when hip hop already existed because it was a really 
It was a really difficult needle to thread at the time. Tina Marie and Rick James, like there's only so many acts that managed to survive and managed to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. A band I kept thinking of in comparison, well, two bands actually. One, the Isley Brothers, who we've talked about before on the show, who went through so many different changes and somehow survived disco and then survived the more synthesizer heavy sound of the 80s. Uh, you know, a few missteps in there, but yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of bands that do that. Another band that I kept thinking of who kind of nailed that like heavier funk, but very shiny, but not being full disco is the group Heatwave, another favorite. Yeah. I mean, I went to see a show at the Long Beach Arena, not to brag, but I, I go to some of the hottest clubs in America. <laughs> I, I went to the Long Beach Arena to see what was essentially kind of like a, a, like a lowrider oldies package show. And one of the groups just thrown in the middle was Midnight Star. Oh, and mm, love that band. Midnight Star, of course, no parking on the dance floor, their signature hit, but several other semi-hits, medium hits. And like they were in full outfits. They were doing choreography and they fully looked like assistant principals. And <laughs> it was it was great. Like it was really awesome. Like they put on a real show. They are like chunky 58-year-olds and 61-year-olds. You know what I mean? Like they they mm -hmm. look like they're like whatever <laughs> whatever slow pitch softball is to major league baseball like they're playing slow pitch softball physically <laughs> <laughs> like they do this on weekends but it ripped and like there are these things that have i think because of the way that disco kind of warped uh white people in particular's perspective on urban music like there's these things that almost completely slipped past the notice of the you know, the quote unquote rock establishment, right? Through the 1980s. And R&B radio is one of those things. But like, even like, even the Isley Brothers, like, it's not like the Isley Brothers were funking out in 1985. They were, they were making AC hits. And so the fact that there were these groups that were able to make something heavy enough that it got, it got people really dancing in a world of Luther Vandrosses, and I like Luther Vandross, but in a world of that stuff was really significant. Like I, I interviewed Egyptian Lover one time on Bullseye, and he was telling me about the songs that he used to DJ in the early 1980s in LA, right? Where hip hop took a little longer to hit in LA and electro was happening. And there were these funk groups that he, as far as he's concerned, Cameo and the Gap Band are as great as Parliament or the JBs because they are the, like, they were the artists that brought heavy dance music, that brought the funk through the dangerous territory of the, of the disco years. He would agree 82 was the best year. <laughs> you say 82 was the best year? I mean, it was the best year for me with regard to uh, breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, the influence that the Gap Band had extends beyond R&B and hip hop. 
Did any of you see that clip of Dave Grohl a couple years ago talking with Pharrell about how the drum intro on Smells Like Teen Spirit was just ripped from the Gap Band? Yeah, absolutely. I don't make a habit of watching Dave Grohl and Pharrell interviews, no. <laughs> well, you're missing out. Fair. Because it was, it was, it ripped. It was great. I remember that clip. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pharrell, you can see his mind is blown when it hits him. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that that's totally what's, what's happening in Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> yeah. It felt like one of those moments where not a single person had caught that somehow. And then just immediately everyone was like, oh yeah, of course that's what the influence is. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing about this album to me and about the Gap Band is it is, and this is like the, besides the fact that like country music or something, just like hipsters never quite made it to 80s urban music other than hip hop. But like the reason this is like not a, a hipster fave necessarily is because it is corny and derivative. It's corny in the sense that there are no songs about the normal things that you're allowed to make urban music about and get acclaimed, which is like uh, the ghetto is so scary or political stuff. It is very, very shiny aesthetically. It has some just real pop ballad stuff on it, you know, some real adult contemporary radio stuff on it. And it is also, it is also really like, there is just a lot of, you can very much still tell that they would love to be Parliament or in on this album, I think Stevie Wonder. And when I interviewed Charlie Wilson, he had no problem being like, yes, of course we wanted to be parliament. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Who wouldn't want to be parliament? Everybody wanted that. <laughs> right. And uh, I think that what is incredible about it is that it has those qualities, right? Those are very much the case, but it is also so special. Like it is also so much its own thing. And it is also, there's no misses. Yeah. It's wall to wall. <laughs> That's right. Front to back. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I said it wasn't corny earlier that you're right, there is corny elements. I've just lost all ability to be objective about yeah. Gap Band at this point. <laughs> I mean, there is an extended flugelhorn intro yeah that's fair <laughs> on i can't get it but you know what it jams that's yes, my, that's does. my fru flugel you guys go let's go around the table i'm i'm choosing i can't get over you as my flugelhorn jam do you guys have a favorite flugelhorn jam <laughs> <laughs> maybe close to you by the carpenters <laughs> oh wow i knew you'd have one peter <laughs> well do we want to at this stage do we want to drop the bomb on them yeah please. sure yeah. All right. This is this is a big one. This will get people on the dance floor guaranteed. You dropped a bomb on me. Side B, track two. You lift the fuse, I stand 
Literally one of my top 10 favorite songs of all time. It's an all-timer. It's a classic. I was wondering where some of these phrases that they come up with for these songs, for these themes, these concepts that they go with come from. And, and looking into it, it was actually one of the credited songwriters who's not an official member of the Gap Band, who but who was kind of a jack-of-all-trades who worked with the label. And that was Rudy Taylor. He was an employee of Total Experience, the label that this was released on, and he did everything. He was assistant to the label head, Lonnie Simmons. He was a studio manager. He kept the studio equipped, ran operations, and a lot of their catchy phrases were things that he would say, like, oops, upside your head, and you dropped a bomb on me. <laughs> and they would just take those and create these classics. Yeah, I mean, there's this is not long on lyrical content. Um, this song, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, you were my thrills, you were my pills. I mean, that's fine. You know, I actually, when I interviewed Charlie Wilson, I asked him about that, the intro of this song, because as one of you guys said, it is that same sort of little grace note. And I was like, that's you on the keyboards, right? And he's like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, is that you giggling? And he's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more of that character. <laughs> yeah, I that mean, you wouldn't expect on a lot of polished recordings. Exactly, and it's and it is. I was thinking about what makes Charlie Wilson special as a singer and performer because obviously he is like one of the most beloved urban vocalists of the last forty, fifty years, mm-hmm. and I think that is especially true within urban music like leaving aside like like i think i don't think rock critics have a problem with charlie wilson but i feel like in urban circles charlie wilson is three levels above where he is at the you know at the rock and roll hall of fame or whatever yeah and we've talked about this a few times on the show before there's these uh urban bands that are just 
life-changingly important to certain people and are like a footnote <laughs> to the rest of the music behind public, like Gap Band, Earth, Wind, yeah. and Fire, Isley Brothers. Like everyone knows those bands, but not everybody appreciates them as the like top tier masters that they are. Yeah, I mean, I would say like the the number one all time example of this, I would say is is Maze featuring Frankie Beverly, mm-hmm. the act that every African American auntie on earth their whole emotional life uh, uh, you know, revolved around when I was a kid. And I think Charlie Wilson is one of those kinds of figures. Partly it's because like Ronald Isley, he got a, he got a foothold in the world of hip hop, thanks mm-hmm. to Snoop Dogg. But I was like, what is, and you know, partly it's specifically that kind of urban audience because it comes from this time when when music radio was still very deeply segregated and was also very deeply segregated between hip hop and R&B and the R&B charts were something that white people were dismissive of and you know even later when when white people got on board with whatever public enemy or whatever i don't mean to diminish public enemy one of the greatest music groups of all time but i think you know what i mean and like e- even even then they sort of like looked back and they were like yeah well you know R&B in 1982 or 1985 was the stuff that was keeping hip hop from being on the radio and so i anyway i was thinking like what's special about charlie wilson like actually as a performer like leaving aside those cultural factors and obviously he can really blow but to me i think it is that for a guy that is singing on like powerhouse funk records, he has almost a shy quality. Sometimes he just really belts, but there's a lot of moments where he has that, that same feeling of that little giggle in the intro where he pulls back. And when I met him, he is like, that is how he felt. Like, obviously he's been through a lot, you know, he was an addict and lived on the streets for quite some time. So he's a delicate guy in general, I think. But I don't think that, I think that that was part of who he, must have been part of who he was because you can feel it in the way that he sings. You know, he's, in the moments when the songs sound like Stevie Wonder records, you know, Stevie is always very forward. And I think that Charlie Wilson often sounds almost like worried that you're going to judge him. <laughs> you mm, know what I mean? Yeah. Just there's like little moments where he pulls back and feels shy or lonely, sensitive. And that's something really special in, in his performance. Yeah. I've definitely thought before that the song Lonely Like Me feels especially autobiographical on this record. Yeah. I mean, I think they were they were probably already doing huge piles of cocaine at this point and their lives were getting pretty messy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do we want to do a little bio on the Gap Band at this point? Let's do it. So the brothers that are the Gap Band, Ronnie, Charlie, and Robert Wilson, were born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the sons of Reverend Oscar Wilson and Irma Wilson. Oscar was a Pentecostal minister at the Church of God in Christ in Tulsa, And Ronnie, Charlie, and Robert sang regularly as their father's warm-up act 
It was their job to hype up the crowd before he went on. Religious music was all that was allowed in their house, but the brothers began smuggling in records by Stevie Wonder and James Brown, and they would secretly listen to these records. And then in high school, Ronnie and Charlie each started their own separate bands, but eventually began performing together and brought in the youngest brother, Robert, on bass. And this is 1967. They play a lot of instruments, each of them, but mainly Ronnie does piano and horns, Robert, bass and guitar, and Charlie, lead vocals and keyboards. They build themselves as the Greenwood, Archer, and Pine Street Band after what was called the Black Wall Street neighborhood in Tulsa, which in 1921 had been the location of one of the most violent racial attacks in American history, where a white mob burned the prosperous black neighborhood to the ground. And it was an incident that had been erased from history. So the intention of naming themselves after the location where this happened was to bring awareness to this tragedy. But the name was too long for show flyers, so they started abbreviating it to the GAP Street Band, and eventually this was just shortened to the Gap Band. They played local venues around Tulsa, like the International Club, where they were eventually spotted by an associate of Tulsa musician, Leon Russell, ah. previously featured artist on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. And they were invited to come meet Russell at his studio, the church studio. After jamming with the Wilson brothers for a couple hours, Russell invited them to perform on his 1974 album, Stop All That Jazz. And then shortly thereafter, the Gap Band released their debut album, Magician's Holiday, on Leon Russell's Shelter Records. He, in turn, ended up performing piano on the Gap Band's sophomore self-titled release that came out on Tattoo, so it wasn't even on uh, Leon Russell's label, but he was still willing to come back and play on their record. To my understanding, that was recorded after the group had moved to Los Angeles. However, both of these albums failed to produce any hits or gain much attention, but then the band signed with Los Angeles-based producer Lonnie Simmons and his production company, Total Experience Productions, which had a distribution deal with Mercury, and their next three records, Gap Band 1, 2, and 3, that were released very quickly, very rapidly, between 1979 and 1980, those exponentially grew both the group's audience and their commercial success. 3 produced the number one R&B hit, Burn Rubber On Me, Why You Wanna Hurt Me, their first song to feature a synth bass line. In 1980, Charlie and Ronnie provided backing vocals for their hero, Stevie Wonder, on his hit, I Ain't Gonna Stand For It, which on that, if you guys are familiar with that song at all, Stevie imitates like a country and Western crooner. And I think it's interesting that he got Charlie and Ronnie to be the backing vocalists on that because they, Lonnie Simmons had, since they were from Tulsa, he gave them this distinctive look of tassels and bedazzled boots and hats. You could almost describe it as like a funky cowboy. They had also early on toured with Willie Nelson and the Rolling Stones. So they didn't necessarily have the normal trajectory of a lot of funk bands of that time. Yeah, I strongly recommend watching the You Drop the Bomb on Me video where they are engaged in wearing these outfits that are 
not only bedazzled Western wear, but military-themed bedazzled Western wear. It's extraordinary. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a great video. And there's, of course, images of planes dropping bombs throughout it as well. It's very, very literal. Though they had started off modeling themselves after Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind, and Fire, the group increasingly featured a harder funk sound in the vein of the Ohio Players and P-Funk, Parliament, Funkadelic. Uh, of course, they would still have smooth ballads as well. The song Yearning for Your Love on Gap Band 3 is a great ballad. But Gap Band 4, amongst all the classics on it, it contains one of the all-time great, I guess it's almost a, somewhere in between a, a, a ballad and a jam, and that would be outstanding. Yeah, there's a few songs on this album that are kind of in that zone between like a full-on dance jam and a slow jam. I would say Outstanding is right there. Do outstanding we... <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> it stands out. Do we want to put that on at this point, Spin Outstanding? Never a bad idea. All right, let's do it. This was written by drummer and percussionist Raymond Calhoun. Outstanding, side A, track four. great percussion track yeah yeah that might be one of the reasons that this is one of the most sampled songs in history <laughs> i mean it's a it's a great song i think it's that i mean besides charlie wilson's great lead vocals like i think that that percussion track is the thing that keeps it surprising throughout you know, like it keeps it from getting dull because it's 
it has middle of the road qualities, certainly. But like that little bit of uh, shiftiness in the back really does a lot of work in keeping it kind of light and moving and, and fresh. Yeah. And that kind of Latin percussion is maybe a unexpected influence from the disco sound. It's like one of the most common tricks to make those extra long disco tracks more interesting and put some variety in there. Oh yeah. I was really surprised when I saw just how much this has been sampled or interpolated. A short list would include Tyler, the creator, Ice Cube, Redman, Rob Bass, Freddie Gibbs, DeBrat, MC Light, E-40, Rex and FX, Shaquille O'Neal, Usher, Jodeci, Madonna, and Soul For Real. <laughs> There's a throwback for you. Just to name a few. <laughs> Amongst many yeah. throwbacks. <laughs> You can always tell a good funk record when the ballads and the slow jams, they put as much energy into that as the up-tempo songs. A lot of the ballads are just phoned in on these funk records, and Campion has just the heaviest down-tempo music. They could just slay a ballad. That's a really good point. You know, the, I think one of the things about the urban musicians from this era and their relationship to hip-hop is like, this is what was in the record collections of the people who made hip hop what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there is, there are many eras of hip hop, right? But I think hip hop became sort of the, the contemporary genre in the early 90s. So like, if you're Snoop Dogg, for example, this is what was playing on the radio when you were a little kid. And so this sound is revered by those guys in a way that is distinctive relative to the kind of like, and like, I love the JBs, right? But like the JBs are a thing that like white rock critics love to respect mm -hmm. and they're right they're correct <laughs> like, <laughs> but <laughs> we're changing the story on the jb's overrated you heard it here first <laughs> but like if if you're 20 in 1993 when hip-hop is becoming hip-hop then that means that you were 10 in 1983 and if you have young parents mm -hmm. they were listening to cool music when you were 10. And so like, this is the magic special stuff. It's like why Snoop Dogg wants to make a record with Dame Funk, right? Right. Because Snoop Dogg loves the records on Solar, you know? Like that's, he's from LA. Dick Griffey. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the Whispers is what he loves, right? That's like home music for him. And in the case of the Gap Band, Snoop Dogg literally saved Charlie Wilson's life. Charlie Wilson told me directly that literally when he was living on the street, Snoop Dogg recognized him driving past and went and said, aren't you Charlie Wilson from the Gap Band? in the early mid 1990s. Hmm. And initially 
Charlie Wilson did not admit to Snoop Dogg that he was living on the street. But Snoop was like, come down to the studio or whatever. I, you're my hero. And eventually Snoop Dogg kind of rebuilt Charlie Wilson's life as Charlie Wilson got clean and got off the streets. And that's like a very literal manifestation. But, you know, I mean, I think all the time about No Limit Records signing Tina Marie, right? It's the same deal. Tina Marie is another person from this era who was able to make, you know, those funk and boogie records in the early 1980s that were all over R&B radio. And, and white people barely know who Tina Marie is. I know because I, I love Tina Marie. I talk about her a lot and I have a lot of white fans and they have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So like those things are like, that's the childhood of of these artists, you know? Like that's why Puffy was making those shiny records with those shiny samples, right? Because he's not embarrassed about it. Yeah, I would say when I first started checking out Gap Band around 10 years ago, I they seemed very familiar, even though I was a baby when these records were out. But it's largely because they were short of like Parliament Funkadelic in the early to mid 90s. They were probably one of the most sampled and interpolated groups in hip hop. So they seemed very familiar, even though I was probably only hearing them for the first time like 10 years ago. Yeah. And thankfully, Charlie Wilson had the ability to recognize that if he wanted to launch a solo career late in the game, he would have to associate and like collaborate with the younger artists, even if he didn't understand the music they were doing at first. And yeah, the Snoop Dogg connection, many other things just really resurrected his career and allowed him to keep going to this day. I think there are a lot of artists from this time that are deeply revered in the hip hop community in a way that they aren't in the broader music nerd community. Yeah. And look, everybody loves Shaka Khan, right? But Shaka Khan is on a on a different level in that world, right? It's yeah. like, you know, my friend Jay Smooth made a great podcast for for Audible about Michael Jackson called Think Twice. And one of the episodes was just Jay talking to different people about what The Wiz meant to them. Hmm. I've never even seen hmm. The Wiz. <laughs> like, I'm going to be honest I with you. I thought as a very little kid. Like, I, I, I love Michael Jackson as a musician anyway, for what he meant in my childhood. I believe him to be a child abuser, but... But like I, I, I like the music couldn't mean more to me, and you know, obviously, like I love, I love soul music is my favorite kind of music, um, but I've never bothered to watch The Wiz, and it was just person after person talking about how The Wiz was like the most important film of their childhood because it was always on BET because they watched it every year at Christmas or whatever, and a lot of these records fall into that zone where for white people like myself, it is just outside of my cultural milieu. And it certainly falls out of outside of the, the understanding of the critical establishment, which is substantially white, even the cool white people, right? So I think that's one of the special things. And one of the reasons it ends up as a dollar bin record, right? Like it's in a different lane that is a little more 
it's a little more opaque to 45 year old white dudes in record stores. Yeah. Until, Until now. now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear that? My fellow 45 year old dudes in record stores <laughs> together. We shall buy all of the Tina Marie albums. <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and just sort of wrap up the gap band bio here. Their final release on the Total Experience label was in 1988. It was called Straight from the Heart. And by this point, with the exception of another group called Yarbrough and Peoples, who had been discovered by Charlie Wilson, the label head of Total Experience, Lonnie Simmons, he was not able to have much success with other acts that he signed to the label, even formerly successful acts like Billy Paul and it seems that it was not a very well-managed label. And, and Lonnie Simmons was taking songwriting and producer credits on Gap Band songs and sessions that he was not involved in. He was keeping most of their royalties and as well as their touring money. He was keeping that. And Charlie says they were probably pulling in around 100000 a night on the road in the mid to late 80s. And they weren't seeing very, almost any of that. <laughs> and... Uh, the Gap Band in 1989 moved to Capitol Records and released the song All of My Love, which was their first number one R&B song since Outstanding. Oh, wow. Yeah. By that point, if you listen to that song and some of the other stuff on that album, they're getting into New Jack Swing territory. And of course, they were an influence, a huge influence on that genre. Vocalists like Aaron Hall, Jodeci, and Keith Sweat. But the band slowed down at the onset of the 1990s. Charlie Wilson did put out a solo album in 1992, but as we've already mentioned, unfortunately, increasing drug and alcohol dependence soon left him destitute for a time. But by 1995, he received treatment and met his wife, a social worker, through the drug rehabilitation program. He soon resumed his music career, and Gap Band released a couple more albums in the 1990s. They continued touring into the 2000s and officially ended in 2010 when Robert Wilson sadly died unexpectedly of a heart attack at the age of 53. And Ronnie Wilson just passed away a couple years ago at 73 after suffering a stroke. But Charlie is still at it at age 70. And as Jesse was talking about, in the mid to late 90s, he was featured on all these tracks by hip-hop artists, especially Snoop Dogg. He put him on many times over. He put him all over uh, his second album, Snoop Dogg's second album, The Dog Father. And he was on stuff by Mystical and Mia X. And in more recent years, Charlie's appeared on tracks by Tyler, The Creator, Nas, Brock Hampton, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. That's just to name a few. It's amazing. And he's also put out a total of eight solo albums. I was listening to his most recent one from 2017, In It to Win It, and it's inspiring and really good. <laughs> is it in the same vein at all, or is it? It's more modern sounding, but it still sounds like Charlie Wilson. Hmm. It also did well. It debuted at number seven on the Billboard 200 and has Snoop Dogg, Wiz Khalifa, T.I., and Robin Thicke. He's got all these <laughs> guest features on it. I mean, he's just so well-respected that I think anyone's willing to come on. And it's funny because all these artists are putting in like their most positive work when they're working with Charlie. Yeah. Aww. 
he and his wife, his wife came with him when he came to be on Bullseye. And they're really quite a team. Like you can tell that she really, really, like part of uh, her life is dedicated to him, right? Like she takes care of him and he needs her. As like I said, he really seems like a, a delicate guy, but it does not feel weird or exploitative in either direction. Like it feels like they really mean the world to each other and beyond Snoop Dogg picking him up off the street, like she's the one who really gave him this life. She's the she's the superstructure for him. Often in interviews, he gets a little choked up when he starts talking about his wife. It's, it's very apparent that they mean a lot to each other, as you said. I got the impression that she also helped him get out of some of the shady record contract bindings that he was in, <laughs> you know, helped him either start getting paid or get paid for at least his future music. I don't know the exact details. There's a, not a lot of information on what exactly all went down with Total Experience and Lonnie Simmons. And, and uh, you know, Lonnie Simmons only passed away a few years ago. And often when Charlie was talking about it, he wouldn't use any names, but it was very clear who he was talking about. I mean, with these kind of deals, right? Like, ultimately, everything falls into this weird morass of old paperwork and possession being nine-tenths of the law. and You know what I mean? So ultimately, to get power back for the artists and to get the money for the artists really requires just kind of doggedness and leveraging the public persona, right? You can go out and say, I created this, I should own it, in a way that the other the people that are holding the paperwork can't. If you're Charlie Wilson and you're in recovery and you're a delicate guy and you're just trying to get on stage to make a living, what you really need is somebody that is a thousand percent on your team and is tenacious as hell. And I, I get the impression that's that's part of his wife's MO. Yeah, we talked about when we talked about John Fogarty, how he was battling for like fifty years and he's pretty clearly a cranky, tenacious guy. So yeah, it takes a lot. I mean, he kind of also talks about how his wife saved his life and that relationship was a turning point for him. So I'm detecting a theme. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sean. Yes, Peter. I imagine you had a lot of fun thinking about what you might recommend for similar albums if people for some reason can't find the gap band out there in the bins i'm trying to set a new record on this show as the most closely related list to an album i have eight recommended albums that are similar very good put out in 1982 eight they're all put out in 1982 and they all the bands feature um family members together in them siblings if you will Wow. A plus without even hearing the list. All right, here we go. (laughs) First one, the recently mentioned Whispers. Love is where you find it. 1982. Absolutely incredible record. Very similar heavy synthesizer sounds with some incredible vocal harmonies and definitely a record that we'll be featuring on this show at some point. Second recommendation, DeBarge. All this love famous family group and one that we've almost covered before. (laughs) Yeah. We, we almost did DeBarge and did not and need to get back to that. They're, they're Michigan. 
Too. Can I tell you something about DeBarge? Just sorry to derail the show, but no, please. I interviewed DJ Quick on Bullseye one time, who is oh, that was a great interview. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope people will listen to it because Quick is obviously he's one of my favorite musicians ever, but also just a totally fascinating and delightful guy. And uh, <laughs> there was this one part where El DeBarge came up because El DeBarge was on one of his records, and I was just like, "That's interesting. Why El DeBarge?" And he got into it, you know, he, he's just homies with Elder March, but, but also he, he just casually mentioned, he's like, that's the gangsterest motherfucker I know. <laughs> and like, this, this is a dude, like, this is Quick talking about a 65 year old man or whatever. And Quick, of course, was in-house yeah. producer at, at Aftermath and stuff, you know, like he knows all these. <laughs> yeah. Had a very heated rivalry with MC8. <laughs> And yeah, that's like the stories from back in the day of people talking about how like it was well known that the only artist you never talk shit about was MC Hammer. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> Hammer rolls deep in the bay. Yeah. All right, third recommended similar album, Zap Two. Ooh, another one of my absolute all-time favorite funk bands, and it should be noted that their big hit "Computer Love" from the new Zap for You. Mm-hmm. Features uncredited vocals from Charlie Wilson. Oh. Yeah, that was a kind of big deal because they were considered rival bands, but they were good friends. And I think there was some label things that kept the them from doing a video or crediting him. Uh, but yeah, it's it's funny because I discovered them around the same time and their names are Zap and Gap. Right. <laughs> I always associate them. Yeah, and there's the one Zap song where they're just like shouting out their favorite other funk artists and they specifically mention Charlie Wilson and Gap Band. So I think it was less of a rivalry than people realized. All right, and then real quick, five extra records that I won't go into details on, but Starpoint, All Night Long, Mandrill, Energize, The Valentine Brothers, First Take, Midnight Star, Victory, and the Pointer Sisters, so excited. Just can't hide it. Yeah, yeah. And for those who are inevitably wondering, I did not mention the Isley Brothers record that came out in 1982 because it's not very good. <laughs> That's all right. Even even though they're one of the best bands ever, they had a short downtime. <laughs> I mean, it, you got to give them a break. They put out so much amazing music. They probably didn't have any juice in the tank at that point. <laughs> yeah. They're allowed an occasional dud. It's fine. Well, Sean, that was a very impressive list. Mm-hmm. You're, you're doing the bargain bins work over here. Yeah. And did you, did you have any time to prepare anything else for us before we get out of here? But wait, there's more. It's the return, the triumphant return of Peter's favorite segment. All caps user reviews. Sean reads all caps user reviews. I mean, you guys know I'm a man of the people. I like to keep this show grounded, get out there, put my ear to the streets, finger on the pulse, etc. See what the the common people feel about this record. We love it, but what does everybody else think? Okay, first review, and uh, you know I try to read these to keep the original intention of the anonymous author. So I'm gonna do my best. This one is a review of the full album entitled Gap Band 1 V Funky Family. (laughs) After the Gap Band 111, they were still kicking number sign. 
at sign. In the early 80s, early in the morning was tight, so funky with a blend of Stevie Wonder and Charlie's voice, Lonely Like Me was a reminder of me always being alone and love trying to find that special someone. It's conservative R&B with a country beat. Something that Stevie Wonder could have sung. Outstanding. What can I say? Simply outstanding. You Dropped a Bomb on Me was their signature hit, but the 12 version is so much hotter. I can't, can't get over you was a touching ballad, yet sounding like Stevie Wonder. Talking back was, in my opinion, a follow-up to gash, gash, gas, just silly, funky talk to jam to a sweat to love it. Five stars. Hell yeah, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, you you read that very faithfully to what they wrote, didn't you? I'm, I'm just trying, trying to preserve the original intention, speak in their <laughs> voice. All right, I got a couple more real quick. These are of uh, individual tracks from the album. These next two are reviews of the song Outstanding. First one, Outstanding Performance. And this one, so very genuine, so heavenly blessed to define the test of time. And uh, another review of the song, Outstanding. Mom loved this song. Man, I missed that lady. Oh. <laughs> oh, that one made my heart hurt a little. Yeah, it's the full range. <laughs> All emotions can be connected to the Gap Band. All right, this, uh, I got one review here for the song, Early in the Morning. It goes like this. Lionel Richie is my biological father, unfortunately. Don't want him in my life. I have a very, very rich father. <laughs> All right. <laughs> unfortunately. That's, that's the full, the full review. review. <laughs> that's this anonymous person's full thoughts on the song early in the morning. <laughs> Well, they, they got something different out of it than I did. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we're not all hearing the same thing. Yeah. Lionel Richie isn't my biological father, so <laughs> I just can't relate. Yeah, fortunately <laughs> or unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One final review. This is for the song, I Can't Get Over You. I remember when that album came out. I was playing that at home and nobody limed it. WBLK. Started playing it, then er damn buddy liked it. I knew that was going to be a hit, and it was. Sarah Smile, same thing happened. I got that and the city, NYC. That is what our four MOs before it got to BFLO, NY, so I, W, S. Ready for a new records, because I play X, the Groves, almost off my 45 at the time. Bulk begave that Sarah Smile some airtime. Every Oiher record they played was Sarah Smile. But I'm pretty good at calling what's going to be the next hit. But yupper, that's the way it goes. <laughs> wow, that was an emotional journey. Yeah, that's what the people think of Gap Band 4. Well... Thank you for bringing that perspective to this episode. You're Sean. welcome. Anytime. Jesse, at this point, before we wrap things up, would you like to plug anything that you have going on out there in the world of podcasts or beyond? 
Yeah, I mean, I do comedy on my shows, Judge John Hodgman and Jordan Jesse Go, but but if you're listening to this show because you love records and music and especially urban music, I've been doing Bullseye, my NPR interview show, for uh, almost 25 years since I was 19. And the archives go way back. And I just took a look to see like a recommended if you like, if you like the Gap Band for just in the past few years, people who have been on Bullseye. I came up with Brenton Wood, who is a god of Chicano soul. He's African-American, but in the Chicano community in LA, he is a true god and a lovely, charming guy in his 80s. I had Smokey Robinson on earlier this year. Also immensely charming. I had Robert Cool Bell from Cool and the Gang on recently. Uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who are the most delightful, fascinating, brilliant guys. Mm. Unless maybe you, unless maybe you count Wendy and Lisa, who are the most delightful, brilliant, fascinating ladies. Minneapolis. What can you say? I was I was talking to them. When their parents were both in the Wrecking Crew, and the both of their fathers were in the Wrecking Crew. That's how they they met each other as teenagers. And I can't remember whether it was Wendy or Lisa was telling me about how she used to listen to progressive funk records when she was, when she was like 12. And I was like, well, what were you listening to? Like Mandrill or something? And she's like, oh, I loved Mandrill. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That's what it's like when your dad is a legendary studio musician and you're into, <laughs> you're into funk when you're 12. Yeah. 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 You might end up playing with Prince then. Ernie Isley, the Pointer Sisters, Bootsy Collins, George Clinton, all have been on the show over the years. So I hope you will check out Bullseye and, and listen to one of those. If I was going to pick one right now to say, that, man, that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis one was really great. And that, that was relatively recently. So type in Bullseye, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and and listen to the guys, those guys talk about living off of one church's chicken meal package a day, which they would try and make last through the day after they quit the time because they quit slash were fired from the time because they kept showing up prints. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about them a little bit on our Alexander O'Neill episode, uh, but I have not heard that bullseye interview. So I'll definitely be checking that out. Oh. And I, Alexander O'Neill, what more, what more classic example of this genre <laughs> This genre of musicians, which can be titled revered by black, black people, unknown by white people. <laughs> yes, very true. That is a 10 out of 10. Like you'd say something about Alexander O'Neill or Orange Juice Jones. And yeah, anyway, Alexander O'Neill's great. I, I had yeah. a DJ friend here in Philadelphia recently go see the band Breakwater in concert. And he said he was absolutely the only white person in the audience. <laughs> That's great. Well, Jesse... We can't thank you enough for coming on the program and talking Gap Band 4 with us. This is incredible. We've been meaning to talk about Gap Band for a long time, and we're so happy that this is the one you wanted to do. Oh, what a, what a joy to get to, to get to talk about it. You know, one time years ago on Jordan Jesse Go, I introduced this idea of the Power Jam, which is the song that you listen to when you need to get pumped. And obviously... There's lots of great power jams out there for me. Occasionally, it'll be The Champ Is Here by Jada Kiss. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a little on the nose, but Annie Up by M.O.P., Bigger Than Hip Hop by Dead Prez. But the 
the all-time number one power jam for me, without a doubt, is you dropped a bomb on me. Like I, I will, I punch a hole through a wall. I'm so excited <laughs> to be listening to you dropped a bomb on me for the seventy-five thousandth time. And we, <laughs> we go. Jordan and I, when we do Jordan Jesse Go shows, we go on stage to you dropped a bomb on me, and have ever since since that came up on the show. And like every time while it's playing, as I'm going on stage, I'm like, fuck yeah, you dropped a bomb on me. This song rips. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, and you can't go wrong after that. You're in the right mindset to go. <laughs> There's been many early mornings in my household where we're trying to get my daughter up and out of the house and hyped. And there's, there's no better way to do it than just blasting. You dropped a bomb on me. Starting the day off. Right. Love it. Well, Sean, it sounds like you requested we go a different direction with our final selection for this episode. Do you want to introduce that song? Yeah, we are going to go out on one of the great tracks on an album full of great tracks, Lonely Like Me. We mentioned it before. Another great example of a ballad that they just inject so much energy and emotion into, and it's incredible. Yeah, and like you said, this sort of feels a little autobiographical for Charlie Wilson. Yeah, the emotion seems extra genuine. Yep, and he's one of the songwriters on this. All right, on that note, let's wrap up this episode of I Buy That for a Dollar. Of course, you can check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Podcast. We have bonus episodes. We have mixes. We have records we'll send you. It's a lot of fun. A lot more content over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Again, Jesse, thank you so much. Oh, what a joy. Thank you much. This has been I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman, but yupper, that's the way it goes. <laughs> I'm Jesse Thorne. All great radio hosts have a signature sign off. <laughs> Eyes. I could tell that you were no.
far. 